Welcome to the first footnoting history episode of 2020, and the first episode of our series, Footnoting Disney. This is Elizabeth, producer and contributor for Footnoting History. And while in just a minute, Kristen will entertain you with the story behind the hunchback of Notre Dame, we want to start the year by sending out a special thank you for listening, and also ask you to consider supporting us through our new Patreon account, as recent changes have raised our production costs. Our goal, as always, is to bring you excellent, enjoyable, and free content. We appreciate any and every contribution. You can learn more through our website or go directly to patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. Thank you. And now, enjoy the episode. The story of the Hunchback of Notre Dame is as much about unlikely heroes and stirring suspense as it is about the cathedral itself. When the novel was first published in 1831, Notre Dame was over 600 years old and crumbling. It was in need of a few champions, and it found them in Victor Hugo, a beautiful but marginalized street performer, and a one-eyed deaf bell ringer who brought the cathedral back to life. Hi, and welcome to Footnoting Disney. I'm your host, Kristen. And today, we will be visiting an old footnoting history friend, the Cathedral of Notre Dame of Paris, which is the central character of Victor Hugo's 1831 novel by the same name. You may remember from footnoting history's 200th episode that the English translation of the title, usually The Hunchback of Notre Dame, tends to obscure this fact by focusing on the figure of the bell ringer Quasimodo. But Notre Dame itself is the story, and it's one that started over 800 years ago. Victor Hugo's novel, Notre Dame of Paris, had the effect he was going for. It was instantly immensely popular and inspired people to care about Paris's cathedral in ways they hadn't in centuries. Notre Dame was reprinted thousands of times, translated into many languages, and adapted to art and later film. The first hunchback-themed movie came out in 1905, a silent 10-minute short called Esmeralda. Others were soon to follow. The first television miniseries debuted in 1966, and rumor has it that Idris Elba is working on a modern version for Netflix. Fingers crossed. The story also made it to the theater, the opera, and the ballet. Different versions tended to emphasize different aspects of the story. One 1923 movie was all about the love of Quasimodo for Esmeralda, and the ballets featured her dancing, of course, and in a 1983 arcade game, you play Quasimodo, and you jump over extremely pixelated objects and ring bells. If anyone comes across this gem in what I assume will probably be a Pizza Hut somewhere, please contact Footnoting History immediately so I can go play it. In 1993, a creative development executive at Disney named David Staten was inspired by a Classics Illustrated comic book of the story. Apparently, he found it charming, and it was what inspired his initial proposal to make the film. The 1996 Disney version borrows heavily from a 1939 film adaptation directed by William Dieterle. Take a look at the 1939 version of Quasimodo, played by Charles Lawton, and you'll probably see a few similarities to the Disney one. The 1939 movie also emphasizes justice and the monumental importance of the cathedral itself, themes that the 1996 animated version embraces, along with accepting otherness and the importance of one's character. There are arguably three main characters in Disney's adaptation of The Hunchback, Quasimodo, Esmeralda, and the cathedral itself. Quasimodo and Esmeralda each capture very different aspects of otherness in medieval society. Quasimodo is deformed and unable to leave his home. Esmeralda is beautiful, 
but as a gypsy, is excluded from society and has no place that can truly be home. The cathedral is a refuge to each. For Esmeralda, the cathedral provides sanctuary when she is attacked. For Quasimodo, the cathedral is his place to be beautiful, to soar gracefully among the lofty beams while ringing out the melodies of his beloved bells. The cathedral plays a key role in the story, but in Victor Hugo's time, Notre Dame was neither as beautiful nor integral to society as it appears in the Disney film or the novel. When he first began writing Notre Dame of Paris in 1829, Victor Hugo wanted to highlight how the cathedral was a shell of its former self. It was falling apart, and it had been for a while. Before French revolutionaries got to it in the 1790s, and before they got to it again in the 1830s and the 1840s, as Christine and Elizabeth discussed, the Protestant Huguenots in the 16th century had the first major go at vandalizing Notre Dame. No one cared too much to fix it up, and instead focused on building projects that today make Paris just so Parisian. Hugo was well aware of this, and in the novel, he predicts that Notre Dame might soon, quote, disappear from the face of the earth, end quote. By the time Hugo was writing in the 1820s, the cathedral was as neglected as his Esmeralda and as debilitated as his Quasimodo. For Hugo, the cathedral itself is the central character. When the stone gargoyles come alive to interact with cartoon Quasimodo, that's not far off from Victor Hugo's original intention, where the cathedral is a personified centerpiece of the tale. It lives, it breathes, it hurts. There are pages upon pages devoted to the cathedral's description in the novel. It's part of Quasimodo and of Paris, and it is alive. For Hugo, architecture was the way that humanity communicated before the printing press. It was history, it was science, it was, quote, wonderful art, end quote. Nearly two centuries later, in 2019, at one of the cathedral's darkest moments, France's president, Emmanuel Macron, would echo Hugo's sentiment, saying, quote, Notre Dame is our history, our literature, part of our psyche, the place of all our great events, our epidemics, our wars, our liberations, the epicenter of our lives, end quote. Construction of the Cathedral of Notre Dame began on a small island in the Seine called the Ile de France in 1163. When Notre Dame was being built, it employed hundreds of stonecutters, carpenters, builders, sculptors, and glassmakers. It was an economy in miniature. When the cathedral was finished, it was where scholars like Peter Abelard wanted to be, and it needed a staff of priests to keep up with the religious and everyday running of a complex that included a church, a large collection of relics, and a cloister for monks. It would come to feature the dazzling stained glass windows, soaring pointed arches, and dramatic flying buttresses that would become iconic of high and later medieval European cathedrals. This style of architecture would ultimately become known in the 16th century as Gothic. Gothic-style architecture allowed for the super-high ceilings that you see in the movie. The stress and pressure of the walls and ceilings were directed down and out by the pointed arches and were supported by the flying buttresses. With these newer structural designs, the central portion of the cathedral, the large main aisle called the nave, could be surrounded by slender arcades of columns and galleries, giving the area an open feel. More of the walls could be cut away for windows, immense kaleidoscopes of vivid color that drew their viewers up and into the world of saints and kings, the multimedia devices of their day. Modern visitors of cathedrals often do not realize just how colorful and alive the medieval cathedral once was. Years have stripped away the saint shrines and tapestries and wall paintings that once adorned cathedrals, but in the later 15th century, 
there would have been a riot of art on display. The chantry chapels, those individual altars that were eventually built by the very wealthy along the sides of the nave, give some hint as to the types of decorations that once filled the space. Things like altar cloths, paintings, flowers, candles, and sculptures. Many of the sculptures that would have greeted a medieval visitor to Notre Dame were either replaced in the Baroque period, which is from around 1600 to 1740, or were destroyed in the Revolution. But they once would have provided a focus for worship and reflection and religious instruction. Disney's Quasimodo hangs out with the most famous type of Notre Dame sculpture, what he calls the gargoyles. His three friends hop around and play cards and sing, but none actually redirect rainwater away from the cathedral, which is what would qualify them as technical medieval gargoyles. More appropriately, they would have been called grotesques, but we'll give them an artistic pass since they're cartoons. Medieval grotesques were these little monster figures that adorned the upper portions and the exterior of cathedrals, in the misty airs where demons were thought to dwell, and they were supposed to remind their medieval audiences that the dangers of hell were very real and very close. Today there are 54 grotesques above the three big main doors of Notre Dame, but those are 19th century reconstructions. We don't know how many there were in the Middle Ages, but there were certainly some based on archaeological remnants on the cathedral itself and a 1699 drawing made of the outside. The grotesques were smaller and fewer and shaped a lot like birds. They were part of Victor Hugo's vision of what made the cathedral medieval. In the novel, the grotesques are part of the face of the cathedral, and Quasimodo is in some ways a living grotesque. He is the cathedral, and the cathedral is him. For fans of Quasimodo's story, the bells of Notre Dame are the main attraction. Medieval cathedral bells were rung to announce the times of religious services, for funerals, or for celebrations, and they were pretty complicated to ring depending on how many there were. In the book and in the movie, Quasimodo names them. In all, he has 15 bells to ring when his story takes place in 1482. Medieval Notre Dame had between 9 and 10 bells. Sources differ on the number. But the largest bell still in existence today, named Emmanuel, was actually cast in the 17th century. It was the only bell to survive the French Revolution. And even though it's not medieval, it probably does sound a lot like Quasimodo's great bell Marie. Quasimodo has a bit of a love affair with those bells, and in many ways it's tragic. In the Disney version, the villain figure Frollo forbids Quasimodo from ever leaving the cathedral. He's there to ring the bells, and no one wants to see him. In the novel, Quasimodo is a recluse in Notre Dame, but he's not forbidden to leave. He just strongly prefers to remain in what he views as his sanctuary from the world, in a kind of symbiotic relationship, rather than wander too far beyond its protection. The first time Quasimodo rang one of the bells, Frollo was thrilled, like a parent who hears their child's first word. And for Quasimodo, the reaction was intoxicating. He became a bell ringer extraordinaire, and he loved his job, but those bells would ultimately severely damage his hearing. In the 1831 novel, Quasimodo is deaf. Quasimodo has to deal with a lot of physical impairment, and in the 15th century, this was an especially difficult and complicated situation. Medieval people had many ways of describing people with disabilities, as infirm, crippled, diseased, deformed, malformed, and defective. These terms are both insensitive by modern standards and also pretty vague. We don't always know what physical impairments medieval people were dealing with, but sources do mention individuals who suffered from vision and hearing loss, as well as speech and orthopedic impairments, all things that Quasimodo was dealing with in the novel. 
Many of the physically impaired in the Middle Ages could not perform the jobs that would support them, things like farm work or domestic service. And without networks of support, these individuals were incredibly vulnerable. Victor Hugo writes his Quasimodo as having difficulty hearing and speaking, but he has no trouble treating the cathedral like his personal jungle gym or performing his very physically demanding job. It's really more Quasimodo's ugliness that is the problem. The name Quasimodo works on a few levels. In the Disney version, Claude Frollo, here described as Judge Frollo, reluctantly adopts Quasimodo at the urging of the kindly archdeacon of the cathedral because Frollo killed his mother. Frollo is horrified by the baby, calls him a monster, and the narrator of the scene tells the audience the name Frollo chose was to emphasize the baby's appearance. Quasimodo, he tells us, means half-formed, that is, half-correct. In the novel, Frollo is actually the archdeacon, and he's a much more complicated figure than Disney, who needed an unambiguous villain, makes him out to be. As a young priest, Claude Frollo voluntarily adopts an abandoned baby, left on a small wooden bed in the cathedral called the Foundling Cradle, where it was customary to leave unwanted or orphaned babies in the hopes that someone who is able would take them and care for them. The chapter that immediately follows describes how Frollo lost his own parents to plague, and how he assumed the care of his little brother Jean. Jean does not make an appearance in the cartoon Hunchback, but in the book, he's kind of a brat, who Frollo nevertheless indulges and protects. On the second Sunday after Easter, Frollo is returning from saying Mass at, quote, the altar of the lazy, end quote, and he's thinking about his brother. He sees the screeching helpless baby, who's being heckled by a group of old women for his ugliness, and his heart, quote, melted with pity, end quote. He thought, hey, if I die, this could be my little brother. I'll take this little guy. Oh, you really are ugly. Huh. But Frollo still takes him. And the day he does is Quasimodo Sunday, which gets its name from a Bible verse used during this particular service. It reads, quote, as newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, end quote. In Latin, the language used by the medieval church, this verse begins, Quasimodo geniti infantes. And that's how you get the name for the holy day and a major character of the novel. Victor Hugo leaves it open as to which of these two meanings the name is meant to relay. It's because of the day Frollo adopts the baby, but he says it could also be to, quote, express the incomplete and scarcely finished state of the poor little creature, end quote. And he goes on to list the large wart over the left eye, the hunched back, and the crooked legs of the baby. Today, some people think that Victor Hugo may have had a particular condition in mind when he wrote the character of Quasimodo. His description of Quasimodo largely matches something called type 1 neurofibromatosis, which is a genetic disorder of the soft tissue in the skeleton, also sometimes called von Recklinghausen's disease. Because the gene that produces the protein that helps regulate cell growth is not working as it should, severe complications can arise. The condition can cause neurological impairment, tumors and bumps near the eye area, larger than average head size, short stature, and bone deformities, and deafness. The medieval understanding of the human body was complicated. There were a lot of competing ideas about what lay behind a person's physicality. Physical impairment could be understood as either a spiritual punishment or a gift, the result of unfortunate planetary influence or a medical condition. 
Things like hearing, speech, visual, and orthopedic impairments were treated as illnesses by medieval medical practitioners, who tried to correct what they saw as imbalances in the body. The second-century Greek physician Galen, who was still immensely popular in Europe in the Middle Ages, cautioned that the squishy bones of infants were at risk of becoming deformed due to placing them incorrectly in their cribs or wrapping them too tightly in blankets. It's stuff like this, he said, that can lead to the growth of a hunchback. Others wrote that children born under the influence of Saturn were thought to be especially vulnerable to physical conditions that would make it hard for them to walk. And those who were conceived when the moon was in a waning phase were fated to be, quote, infirm, weak, and not virtuous, end quote. This highlights the bridge between physical and spiritual well-being that medieval people very much believed in. An impairment of the soul could, not always, but could, result in an external impairment of the body. Many medieval people looked at the disabled as wearing their sin for all to see, and so they didn't have to feel bad about it. Some of the physically impaired, who were forced into begging, provided an opportunity for others to do good. They were chances to be charitable. And in fact, Frollo does say that by taking in Quasimodo, he was offering up to God an act of charity that he hoped his ne'er-do-well little brother could benefit from. The vast majority of people in the book are not kind to Quasimodo, and their animosity usually turns on their perception of his physicality. To them, he is ugly and deformed, and they are just not prepared to deal. His body is how they know him. And at the end of the novel, it is Quasimodo's crooked spine, his head sitting between his shoulder blades, his one leg that was shorter than the other, his skeleton that identifies him as the bell ringer of Notre Dame. He is still holding his beloved Esmeralda, who has been hanged. Yeah, you're probably not surprised, but the novel takes a bit of a darker turn than the Disney version. Esmeralda comes pretty close to death in the movie, but it's Disney, so their hunchback has a happier ending than the original novels, but there are still some similarities. In the novel, Esmeralda still falls in love with a stereotypically handsome prince figure, Captain Phoebus. She still is rescued from Frollo by Quasimodo and claims sanctuary in the cathedral, and there is a final scene featuring the death penalty. However, in the book, Phoebus is a bit of a playboy, and Esmeralda is not saved at the last moment. In neither scenario does Quasimodo get to end up living happily ever after with the woman he has fallen in love with. Esmeralda is described in the book and in the film as a gypsy, a group that is now known today as the Roma. In 1482, when the novel is set, gypsies were new to the medieval scene, and people only started recording them in Central and Western Europe in the first half of the 1400s. The consensus among historians is that the Roma were originally from the Balkans. When the Ottoman Empire expanded, they moved to areas close by, like Greece, but also Italy. This group was referred to by a lot of different names based on where Europeans believe they came from. They called them Egyptians after an area in Greece known as Little Egypt, which is where we get the word gypsy. As the Roma continued to move around, they acquired other names based on their location. Gitanos in Spain, Bohemians in France. But the fabled origin of Egypt remained. Their itinerant, exotic nature was part of their identity. Victor Hugo writes that Esmeralda came to Paris by way of Hungary, then through Spain, and then through the Kingdom of Algiers. Her name and dress are labeled Egyptic. She's a mishmash of cultures that is simultaneously alluring and other with a capital O. The encompassing term gypsy would become synonymous with thievery and dishonesty, something that the Disney version does highlight. Watch out, child, a concerned mother tells her young son when he gets too close to Esmeralda, who's dancing on the street for coins. They're gypsies, they'll rob you blind. 
When the Roma were moving into Western Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries, the economic boom of the 12th and 13th centuries was over. It was now a time of population increase and economic decline, along with religious upheaval and the beginnings of modern state formation. In general, there was a fair amount of change and anxiety. The newcomers were not welcomed. When Victor Hugo was writing, Orientalism was more the game. This was the practice of the Western world imagining the world anywhere east of them, or the Orient, and it was marked by a patronizing tendency to see Eastern cultures as unchanging, undeveloped, and thus easily reproduced and subjugated. The French in particular had been enamored with Egyptology ever since Napoleon, and the Egyptic gypsies fulfilled a similar role. Hugo's Esmeralda, like the Disney Esmeralda, dances, plays the tambourine, wears earrings, and reads palms. Whether or not medieval Roma actually did these things remains an open question, but medieval Europeans certainly thought they did. 19th century Europeans did too. Hugo's Esmeralda is a marginalized figure, but she's also characterized by her exotic beauty, and she is definitely an object of desire. She is kind and compassionate, but she's not actually a gypsy at all. Her name was once Agnes, and she's the long-lost daughter of a French woman named Paquette. She was stolen by gypsies, and they left in her place a, quote, little monster, a hideous, deformed, one-eyed, limping thing, end quote who of course grew up to be the bell ringer of Notre Dame. Before he loved Esmeralda, Quasimodo loved those bells. Victor Hugo writes that he, quote, loved them, he caressed them, he talked to them, he understood them, end quote. And when both Esmeralda and Quasimodo's stories end tragically, the bells lose their luster, and the once vibrant cathedral becomes, quote, like a skull, the sockets of the eyes still there, but the gaze has disappeared, end quote. It's some heavy foreshadowing of the state of the cathedral, as Victor Hugo saw it in the early 1800s. But Notre Dame of Paris reminded its readers of Paris's extraordinary medieval history and its responsibility in maintaining that history. Following the novel's 1831 publication, there was an effort to preserve and renovate Notre Dame to what it largely looked like until very recently. The evidence of the success of Victor Hugo's mission was apparent at the heartbreak following the 2019 fire. Probably Victor Hugo would be pretty sad about the facts, the damage done and the things lost, the uncertainty still about its fate, but he would also probably be comforted by how the Cathedral of Notre Dame has been restored to a place of incredible importance. The cathedral, thanks to Victor Hugo, Esmeralda, and Quasimodo, was once again embraced as a symbol of French national identity and today as a world treasure. This has been Footnoting Disney. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>